Good afternoon, and welcome to a special edition of Music Speaks, the podcast that is dedicated to how music impacts people's lives. I am your co-host, Hunter Sagona, and today, continuing with our deep dive series, we will be talking with my fellow co-host, Sean Rimkunis, into the works of Igor Stravinsky. Igor Fyodorovich Stravinsky was born on June 17, 1882, in Oranian Baum, which is the current day Lomonosov in the the Russian Empire, obviously in the current day country of Russia, near St. Petersburg. He was born to a bass opera singer and the daughter of a high-ranking Russian official. He started out actually on a law career path, but eventually followed his musical passion once he got into his 20s, and eventually took lessons from Russia's foremost composer of the time, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. In 1920, he and his family would move to France, where he would spend almost the next 20 years. From there, he moved to America, where he would live for the rest of his life until his death on April 6, 1971, at the age of 88. Welcome, Sean, and I know you're excited to get started. I am. Let's... All right, Sean. So the first song that you had wanted to discuss in this deep dive into the works of Stravinsky is probably his most famous work, which is The Rite of Spring, in which is fully entitled The Rite of Spring, Pictures from Pagan Russia in Two Parts. And, you know, it premiered in 1913 in Paris. And at the time, Paris was sort of the artistic hub of the Western world. And just for a little historical context for those listening, this was during the transition from Impressionism into the modern era, which is sort of also happening at the same time as Impressionism. And because it was 1913, tensions were building. We were only a, a couple of years away from World War One, So that sort of tells you where we are in the, on the world stage. So wh- why did he write this work, Sean? Well, he started writing it because he was into ballet for a really long time and something that i remember my my teachers telling me was that he had this really great relationship with a director who was like you can write all these these awesome ballets Mm -hmm. and at the time stravinsky was sort of like yeah i can do this i can i can figure something out and something really interesting about like the earliest part of his life the dude honestly didn't really care about like how we created it, you know, like he, <laughs> he would just, he, he would do the craziest things, especially like, like we're going to talk about Rite of Spring a lot right now, but if you think about it, like he was really like on the edge of his, like at the edge of his career, like the beginning, you would think that the beginning of his career would be kind of like slow, like Beethoven and Mozart and you listen to like Dvorak didn't really get like his like big break until like, you know, he was like into his eighth or ninth symphony, but now we're and same thing with Tchaikovsky. Like Tchaikovsky wasn't really big until his fourth, fifth and sixth symphony. People, that's people really know him for, but you really get a, get a feel for him really starting out really quickly. And the crazy thing about his writing is that it's just, he doesn't hold back, which I think I, I really like about his music. Mm-hmm. Something that I really 
think that a lot of musicians should really consider is to never try to not do more than you're asked or do more than you're asked in this, especially as, as a trumpet player, because we'll talk about this. Well, maybe we'll talk about the orchestration a little bit, but um, I think that something that Stravinsky does really well is program for large and small ensembles. And we'll talk mm -hmm. about that a lot today. Um, and again, like you said, the reason why we started, he started writing this piece was here's a sort of a funny little tale. I want to tell you um, as the truck goes by my driveway. Um, I think it's interesting that um, he, he had again, like his own little nature hut as most, you know, composers had at the time, like Mahler and Sibelius and all these different people. And the funny thing was he would be in his hut. He'd be writing this music you know, he'd be alone. And that's what composers would need. They would just need to be alone. They would need to sort of find their own muse and they'd be able to sort of figure out things on their own. And then there was a time where he really wouldn't have everything with him. So he would write his mom. He would say, hey, mom, I'm trying to figure out this sort of like um, this. I'm trying to use this pagan melody. I don't know what it is. Can you dictate it down to me and write it back to me? And so like she would, they would send letters to each other. And he would get these letters back of these different melodies. And really? you'll notice in the Rite of Spring that he has these really early pagan melodies that were really based off of origin. And he, you'll see as he sort of continues his work throughout the piece, and we'll maybe talk about this a little more as, as we're going along, but he uses these melodies in a such precise way to describe each part of the ancestry of Russia, which is so interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say pagan, I want those for those listeners to know that this is like the earliest crux of civilization we're talking about here. We're really talking about the origins of origins of our being. So we're talking about like biblical times, about sort of like the earliest era of, of our, our civilization. And I think it's so interesting that we're going to talk about that today because when he started writing it, he's like, you know what? And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swear here. He didn't really give a fuck about anything. You know what? He, he really just wanted to go out there swinging, man. And then you'll see like later in his career, like we'll, we'll listen to the octet and you'll say, what the heck happened to all of his crazy ideas and stuff? We'll start talking about a little bit of neoclassicism, but you'll see something early in this that he really didn't care. He really wanted to get himself known. And we will talk a little bit about this piece. The, the history of this piece is amazing, obviously, because it is something I want to talk about. Um, and I hope I answer your question. <laughs> yeah, you did. No, you did. You, you, you brought us, you know, that was obviously there's a lot of, a lot of uh, idealism behind the work. Um, so the first move of this, the, the first part you wanted to talk about is the first section of the first movement, which is called the Augurs of Spring, the Dances of the Young Girls. Sure. And you really wanted to address the driving rhythms of this section, which I personally think seems like a contrast to the title. You know, it doesn't really give the impression <laughs> of dancing young women. Sure, yeah, absolutely. So um, what stands out about it to you? Can we actually go back one previous movement, actually? I just want to just talk about one thing, if that's okay. Sure, go ahead. Okay. Well, in the beginning, 
we have this really high bassoon solo, mm-hmm. which I think is just glorious. And there's a great story that goes along with it that his teacher, Rimsky, went to his premiere with a bunch of other A-list people like Sousa was there and you had a lot of like other like incredible um, composers at the time. But Rimsky was sitting next to Sousa mm-hmm. and Rimsky listened to the first few measures of this piece and he goes, what the devil is this instrument that is playing <laughs> right now? And Sousa's like, I think that's a bassoon. And Rimsky's like, what the heck? He gets up, he storms out of the place and just doesn't finish listening to the rest of the piece. And I think really? that sort of speaks to his character in a way. Rimsky Korsakov was the father of orchestration. Mm-hmm. And he was just, when he listened to that, he was like, what the heck? Why would you do that to this, to this, to this instrument? Because you really, at this point, um, as you know, uh, and maybe your listeners don't really know, the bassoon is, is really in the lower register of a, of a woodwind instrument. Mm-hmm. And they usually stick with bass clef because that's how they read. And, and that's basically where they lay. They lay a little bit from middle, middle C, a little bit above the middle C and down to really lower. And then you talk about the contrabassoon too, but that's another animal on its own. Um, and the, the, the bassoon in this case plays with an alto clef, which is really interesting because in that case, it really gets really up there. And I've talked to many bassoon players and they say that this is the hardest excerpt ever just because of the air support needed, just because of the, like the interpretation. Um, and there isn't no one recording of this. There are so many amazing recordings of this. And a lot of people are like, this is great. This is, this is something that, I'm so glad that Stravinsky put the bassoon in this way. And, and a lot of people say, oh, Stravinsky didn't really know instruments. Stravinsky knew how to orchestrate for these instruments, honestly. Mm-hmm. And they are so good about the way he wrote things. And just another quick mention about the way he starts it is that it's solo bassoon. It's nothing else. Yeah. It's ba and funny thing about that like i mentioned he tried to get some information from his mother who had sent him all these pagan melodies he used the first one that was one of the first ones and he used that in a very peculiar way he wanted to try to to echo a voice, a vocal style. Maybe he was trying to think of a tenor, but singing a lower part in that way. It sort of fits in the male voice, I think, pretty well. Or maybe he was thinking of an alto singing it in a way. So I think in that way, there's a little bit of that going on. And now maybe going back to the augers, um, I'm sure you're wondering, like, yeah, the dance in this, it's a dance, right? Right, dance of the young women. Right, Dance of the Young Woman. And yet there's this... <laughs> no, it's really cool. And something that I was able to watch when they did this was a lot of... They had this very specific kind of dancing where they'd be crouching over and going... My, my, um, I'm really glad my listeners can't look at me right now while I'm trying to do this because <laughs> it looks really terrible and awkward. But... Um, did I answer your question? Like, no, I didn't answer your question about the augers. Okay. Dan- the dancing, the dancing, dancing. 
Um, yeah, why would he? Why would he contrast the the title "Dance of Dance of Young Girls" with such a driving non-dance-like rhythm? It's it's just so primal. It is work, you're right. This, this, the work the work itself has to sort of deal with a primal organism. Um, and I don't mm-hmm. think he. I think when he wrote it, I'm sure. I'm sure it's something that composers like to do in this era was try to find a new definition for trying to fix something. Maybe I mentioned something yesterday. He didn't really have to find like something in the middle. He's like, you know what? There's, there are extremes in music. There can be super loud and there can be super soft. You know, Mm. there are super extremes in music. And like you mentioned, the auger is a very quiet sort of for, for, for women very small mm-hmm. dance but no they're like they're they're just they're they're like doing this um spiritual ritual of like a of like a very like very fixated dance it's very focused and very like in your head and i think it's just it's so like the thing i love about it is just like how much it is in your face all the time just a it's just it, it 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 just like and there's a really funny story again as I'm coming up with all these great stories but um I'm not making them up I promise um or otherwise I wouldn't have a podcast uh, I think I think something that's really interesting about this is that there was a story about when this like I said with with Remsky Remsky left and like when they heard these rhythms apparently some of the audience members just got onto another person's head and went like just started beating the person's head just to, to sort of deal with it. And I honestly think that this is like the earliest version of like a rock concert in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a classical setting. I think it's so interesting because he did that. And um, you can, you can say like, it's so interesting. Like you would be like, What's creating all that sound? All the sound is coming from like the or, like the string section. Mm-hmm. And something that he writes in the string section is, is just up, up bow. It's just run, 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 run. And there is so much wrist movement happening at that time. So you get a bunch of like lift bows and the sound just explodes, which is exactly it what really he's looking does. for. And we'll mention this later with Firebird, but he he does some techniques with the strings that just explode the sound. It is incredible. Again, I could talk about this forever, honestly, Hunter, but um, <laughs> something, something that I really enjoy about this, this opening or this, this second section of the piece is that it's so surprising. Mm-hmm. You would be like, maybe he starts with an opener. No, no, he, he tried to find ways of surprising the audience, which again, surprisingly, as I said this before, we'll talk about later. He was the master of creating surprises in his writing of music, um, creating suspense, driving suspense, maybe not getting to a climax right away, being like, you know what? You don't deserve it just yet. I want to hold it. I want to hold it for a little while longer. I want to get you on your edge of your seat and then be like, and make you work for it. Exactly. I think that was a great segue. Um, And he just did so many good things when writing. He would just, and if I can briefly mention, this is for a large orchestra, mm-hmm. a really big orchestra. You have yeah. at least 
six trumpets. You have a bass trumpet. You have four C trumpets. You have a piccolo trumpet. You have, you have, you have at least eight to 12 horns in this section, a big yeah. brass section, a, a huge woodwind section, um, two harps, the whole works. I mean, the dude puts everything in the kitchen sink minus, <laughs> minus a chorus, but the chorus are the dancers. Right. Remind you, because that's what they're doing. And it is, again, it's a long work. It's about 45 minutes, but it is just, it's just so, it is so incredible. I guess that's where I'll stop for right now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely impressive. Can I ask you, what was your first impression about listening to it? You know, I, I had, I had previously known the piece, so I sort of knew what, what was coming, but I remember the first time I heard it, I was very surprised because, you know, the first time I heard the piece, it was actually in Fantasia. Mm. And, you know, they do a fantastic animation of Fantasia. And they, instead of the, the birth of Russia, they do it as the birth of creation. And um, it's a very, like, science, you know, the very scientific approach of the, the Big Bang and the world being created and then life growing on the planet and then the dinosaur right, right, and the volcanoes right. and all that kind of stuff. Very, right. very well done. So that was my first introduction with it. And I was just struck how, you know, it, it didn't seem like when I, when I was watching it, it seemed like it was made for what I was watching, which sure, is obviously sure. credit to, in this case, the animation department who was able to take the sound they were hearing and put it to a vision that they thought really fit it. But thinking back on knowing that it's a ballet, I'm trying to envision in my head people dance because I haven't watched. Oh, excuse me, I'm yours. I haven't watched. <laughs> it's 11, I'm still asleep. Um, <laughs> I haven't watched a, a performance of the ballet, but it just seems so... Oh, like you said, primal. It doesn't make it me is, think yeah. choreography. Um, no, but so, they do a really good job with it too, actually. Yeah. I, oh, I believe you. Yeah. I yeah. bet it's just, it's probably something that you have to, you know, it's a style. And I imagine it probably threw people really off guard at first. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, Rimsky-Korsakov didn't <laughs> like it. Um, can, I, but, can I say one more thing, Hunter, real sure, quick? Sure, go ahead. Sure. And this is sort of, a theory-esque thing and i'm not i'm not gonna expect all our listeners to sort of figure this out but he he, he was doing this really I, I was able to watch this documentary about how he, he was talking about his early life and his career he said he was like i was crazy you know he was like <laughs> saying like he was doing all these crazy different things and there's something that we ha we haven't mentioned which is really important is that chord yum pump 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 happens like a billion times Mm -hmm. it, yeah, just, it, it just played over the chord is played over and over and over and over again and mm -hmm. he's like and and one of the guys like did you ever get tired of just playing that same chord over and over again he goes no it's just the chord i wanted to, to, to add suspense and theory theory wise here's what he did he he plays an e g sharp b e as an e major chord on top of that he has a d flat e flat g b flat so on top of mm -hmm. each chord, it's so interesting that he has an E, but like right in the middle of it, he has an E flat seven chord. 
but just adds to this cacophonous sort of strange thing. And like I mentioned with, with the strings, the strings are playing double, triple doubles, double stops. They're playing so many different notes at the same time. And I think it's worth noting that this was such a, like a, a, at the time, this was like, what are you doing, man? This was just ahead of its time. So ahead of its time, in fact, that like there were riots and mm-hmm. there were, you know, people were like, I hate this. And people were like throwing tomatoes and like things at the stage at the end of the production. And they were like, what the hell is this? You know, but no one really understood the art of it. You know, there were some, there were some people who were like, this is, this is a work of a genius. Others are like, this is complete garbage because they just didn't understand it. Like we mentioned yesterday when we were talking to Nico, Mm -hmm. you know, like we, we, sometimes when we don't like things, we'll just say, I, you know, I don't like it, you know, it's, and then we'll, we'll, we'll declare it bad because we don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. This, this, for the, for its time, it was so ahead of its time, you know, yeah. and it did, it just did so many great things. Um, we can keep, let's keep going though. I, I don't want to stop anymore. So let's keep going. <laughs> so this, the, the, or rather not the next section, but the last section of movement number one is called dance of the earth. And this is something else that you wanted to talk about. It's a very, also very driving, powerful section. The trumpets have a lot of really like interjectionary Mm -hmm. notes in it. Uh, I imagine it's probably a powerful section to play. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you you have to say about this particular section? Sure. Well, I wanted to mention that this section really sets you up for the next act. Because, mm-hmm. because there are two parts. There's the adoration of the world and then the... I'm afraid you've cut out. So, Hunter, as you gracefully just said, the trumpet does interject with a lot of really different things. And something that Stravinsky does really well in this section is just have this driving motive. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy. Um, and it really just like, as I, as I said before, he just tries, tries to find a way to just drive it to the end. And it's just like... Mm-hmm. And then, and then he gets there, and you're like, huh? What? <laughs> because you're just amazed by, like, the sounds that are produced in this section. It's like this, and then that's it. That, that's how they send you out in the part one. And they're like, that's it. That's all we got. And you're like, hmm, I wonder what comes next. <laughs> so it's so interesting. I think... Something I like I said I mentioned before about loving Stravinsky is just because he's just willing to try things. And I think that's mm-hmm. something that is underrated in, in composing recently is that sometimes when people try things, they succeed. Sometimes they don't. So, I mean, it really depends on what they're doing. Um, so, I, I would say this time around, they do such a great job of it that they just, you know, 
find a way of making it super exciting, which is something that Stravinsky does really well. And it gets you amped up about classical music. I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll mention this about Firebird, but but I think Firebird was one of the first classical pieces I heard with an orchestra live. Was it? You know, it was one of the first pieces. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And, you know, it, it was just so powerful. Like, And then I was like, you know what? Orchestral playing is the bee's knees. I mean, like, if I think about it, I mean, like, that's where the real money's at. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I think something about Stravinsky that made me love classical music is that, like, I usually, I, when I listened to classical music initially when I was younger, I was like, this is just so predictable, you know? And I was like, this isn't really cool. And I think that's why I love modern music now because it's less predictable. You don't know what's going to happen. And Stravinsky, the master manipulator, not as a person, but as a composer <laughs> with instruments, he does a fantastic job. And I, I think he does justice in this section. Mm-hmm. I, think that's, I think that's true. Um, but like you said, you know, that's the end of the movement. So then we begin the second movement, which is called the sacrifice. And one of the things you wanted to talk about in this movement was specifically, or the main thing about this movement you wanted to talk about was the opening. And, uh, right. you know, it opens with tons of dissonance. Oh, and uh, if I'm so not good. mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, there's a background part that the oboes have that are using, I think the same interval that Williams uses on Tatooine with the Jawas, if I'm not mistaken, wow. but I don't know that for certain. Um, That's a great connection. Thank you. Um, but what did you want to say about this opening? What can I say about this opening? Cinematic. It is so good. I got to tell you, man, he knows how to write for woodwinds. He mm-hmm. really does. He knows how to write in and out of all these different things. And it's just so incredible. I don't know how to describe it. He's just so good at it. It's scary good how good he is at it. It is so good. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, wow. Okay. I'm, I'm a little, ch- I'm choked up right here, right now. Um, when I think about it, <laughs> okay, I gotta say, I gotta mention this really quickly because it is so important. You never know what time signature is gonna come next. Well, that's definitely like, true. And I think he, a big trademark of his is changing the time. And we'll talk about that with the last, with the last moment, but in this, in this movement, he switches from 7-4 to 3-4 to 1-4 to 2-4 to 6-4, doing so many different things. And like you said, the dissonance. Mm-hmm. But when I listen to dissonance, I get shivers, but in, in a totally different way. I'm like, this is so good. Like I'm at like a dissonant spa or something. Like it's like, like, a, um, spa. Like, a, like a liberal spa of some kind that I'm like, I'm like, oh, this is so good. Um, I, I, this is, you know, you know how I always say, Hunter, how I want to get buried in music. If I could get buried in music and only one kind yes. of music, this would be the piece I would be buried in because I love just how ethereal and eerie and how instruments work together. And something that he does really well, again, like I mentioned, is is his is his extended techniques for violin. Mm-hmm. And something that he mentions is something that he does is he used the upper harmonics of a violin. And again, I don't want to scare our listeners away from my theory savviness, but 
what he does is he has them play two different sides of the violin where you can barely hear the, the upper note, but you can hear the higher note. So definitely you can sort of hear the upper harmonic of the note, and it is, it is just so glorious, and it is so scary, but it is written <laughs> so well. And you can know, like what Hunter just said with the Tatooine thing, there is such a distinction there. Like something that Stravinsky does really well that not a lot of people have given him credit for is his early modernistic cinematic feel to all of his music. I mean, of course, most of them were for ballets, but if you think about it now, like there are so many really like great moments. Like, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's crazy. If you think about the first Fantasia hunter, yeah, he used, they used two of his pieces. Yeah, it's crazy. His pe- two of his pieces. I, I don't think any other composer has gotten that sort of similar. Maybe Beethoven, maybe, but Beethoven's in a league of his own. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about the big, you know, big superstars of this era, Stravinsky was huge, and he was competing against Schoenberg, and Schoenberg at the time was like. Stravinsky's doing whatever he wants. I hate that. <laughs> Schoenberg was a hater, but Schoenberg was also writing this really like crazy, intricate music at the same time. And Hunter's like, God, if we listen to Pierre Lunaire, I'll probably shoot my brains out. Um, but <laughs> I think uh, there is something said about modernistic music. You can hate it or you can love it. There's no real in-between. I love it just because of how unique it is and something that he does really well in this section. Like you mentioned with Tatooine on and star Wars, he just, he like, again, like I said in the beginning, he doesn't give a fuck. He doesn't care. He just wants to explore these tonalities that are weird and uh, like upsetting. They really are. They're really upsetting. And he does it so well. Man, I can keep just finding words to describe this section, but please go listen to it because it's just so good. Mm-hmm. That's all I got to say, Hunter. All right. And with that, you know, unless you have anything else you'd like to specify about Rite of Spring, um, we shall move on to his second piece. Well, actually, there are two more things I want to mention about Rite of Spring, if that's okay. Sure. Is that, is that okay? Right is that okay? I hope that doesn't mess with your flow. Um, no, not at all. I wanted okay. to leave the last section open for whatever you wanted to talk about. Sure, sure, sure. So there's another section in this, which is basically based on the head of the tribe. Mm-hmm. And we sort of see the origin of the Russian hag, if you give it, if you give it mm-hmm. worth, if anything. Um, and it's, it's dictated by this English horn melody that goes. It's just this really weird chromatic thing that the English horn does. And then the flute just comes in and goes, booty da 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 And it just it just adds to this sort of like really cranky old Russian hag who's just <laughs> marching, marching her way to this girl who is just about to sacrifice her life. Oh. And that's 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 the point of the sacrifice hunter, is that they're sacrificing a woman. They're not sacrificing an animal, they're sacrificing a person. And it is worth noting really? that, yeah, absolutely, yeah, they're they're killing someone. That's 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 the plot of the the show. I mean, like you have the ritual in the beginning. That's the adoration, and then they pick someone, 
and that's what the banana is for. They, mm-hmm. they, they, they find the girl. The girl is excited to be gifted to the gods in a way, thinking that she's going to be revered and explored and sent on her way. But the hag slowly makes her way and looks around the room to try to find the one, which is basically what this section's about, just trying to determine who is the one for her to choose to, to die. Mm-hmm. But, but here's the crazy thing, Hunter. All of these people in this pagan village are sane individuals. They know their place in this world. They understand what they're doing. And yet they're like, okay, I want to give my life to a different power now, moving forward. It's, it's creepy, but it, it is just so beautiful. And this section really just shows off this, wow, my snacks, goes off this sort of just very small, it, it's so wispy, like you can barely listen to it. And it just, it just, it's just so beautiful. It just blossoms. And then it may get a little angry. Like, again, he, he is the master of suspension. And when I say suspension, I don't mean like, fa me, you know, like in church yeah. here, you know. He is the master of you have to wait. If you, get, if you wait long enough, you're going to get it. You are going to get it. I promise. And with that transition from this piece, you sort of see... Because then they do another ritual to prepare the girl to get ready for the sacrifice. And then you finally get to the sacrificial dance at the end. Mm -hmm. And Hunter, you are be prepared to count in this section. Because musicians struggle so much in this section, man. They are like, what? You know, like (laughs) they don't know how to read music when it comes to this section. And rightfully so, because... There are so many different rhythm changes in this. There are tempo, was not tempo. Well, guys, there are there are a few tempo changes, and there are there are metric modulations in this, which is terrifying as a conductor. You're like, okay, what does a thirty second note equal eighth note here? And you're like, oh god, <laughs> no, no. But I mean, the smartest people I've heard conduct this, like Leonard Bernstein, conducting this, so flawless, just feeling like. Getting ready to kill her. It's just so fierce and it's just so in your face. And that's the last thing you hear before you hear at the end. And then you're like, I can't believe I just listened to that. (laughs) As a non listener, a classical listener, you're like, what the heck? But it is just so so amazing it is just so resilient it is just again like i said hunter and i'll say it again and i'll say it a more million times he was in a league of his own because he didn't care he really honestly did not care what anybody thought about his work if he did he wouldn't be writing the things that he did mm-hmm. you know he wanted to try to find a way to break the mold and he did it he was he was a genius he was a super musical genius probably even smarter than mozart in that way too he was just so good at telling a story within the music. And in, I think we're going to talk about Firebird next, right? Uh, next is Soldier's Tale. 
Soldier's Tale. Oh my goodness. Um, again, I have a lot to say about that. Uh, so, but again, to, to finish off Rite of Spring, you gotta listen to it, man. And a lot of people say like modern music isn't for everyone, and I get that. But if you just give yourself time to understand what's happening, then it'll just come from a different place, and you'll be able to respect it just so much more. Mm-hmm. I agree. Done with my speech. <laughs> and and you know uh, since we mentioned it the next piece that you wanted to discuss today is called soldier's tale and it is definitely a, an experimental type piece by him as a lot of his music is and uh, for those who don't know the piece it premiered uh in lausanne in, in switzerland in 1918 uh, it's considered a theatrical work. I know you say quote unquote theatrical work because it incorporates text and, and therefore narration with music and choreography. And mm-hmm. it's, well, we'll get, we'll get to how it's scored in a second. But <laughs> again, historical context, what had just happened, we had gone through, you know, World War I just ended and right. the czar just fell. Right. And, Absolutely. you know, the Russian Empire was sort of in chaos. So for him, That's correct. you know, he was still living there. Uh, you know, he had seen the war and is it's not entirely unsurprising. He would write a piece about a soldier. Right. You know what I mean? That's or, true. or be in a group of people who were writing a work focusing right. on a soldier. So Absolutely. I think maybe that could be where that came from. But right. the actual music itself it's scored for a septet and mm. what are the instruments in this piece? Sure. I'm happy to explain that. Um, so we have, uh, we have voices which are included by the narrator, the devil, the soldier and the princess. The princess is sometimes not used, but uh, in a production that I did, I had the princess say a few lines. Um, uh, and then you have the violin and basically it's basically a violin concerto. If you think about it, um, it's a violin, percussion, clarinet, bassoon, trombone, and trumpet. And the percussion has so many different things. But it is also, I think, it, I think of it as a percussion violin concerto mm. for, for voice. <laughs> and it's in its indirect way, but go ahead, Hunter. Yeah. And speaking of voice, you know, the words are by, oh, no, sorry. Speaking of words, the words are by Charles Ferdinand Ramuz, who was a Swiss sure. writer who uh, who Stravinsky worked with to, to put this together. Um, what are the words talking about? What's the concept of the story? So the concept of the story is pretty estranged. So I'm not going to try to confuse anyone, but I'm <laughs> going to sort of give a brief synopsis so that so our listeners will be able to sort of figure this out. So the story is about this young soldier who is trying to go visit his family and his girlfriend and he's about to head home and he bumps into a a devil and the devil says to him i'll buy this for you i'll buy and he has a uh, i should say he has a violin and this violin sort of is sort of a important part of the story this violin that he has because it's a historic violin and he says i'll buy this violin for you and he goes no 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 i don't want that and eventually the, he gives it to the devil eventually over time within that the devil brings him to his hut where he treats him to all this like 
like tobacco and food and you know relaxation area and he's like you know what i can spend three days leave i'll be able to get away from the army for a little while go back and throughout the story he sort of figures out that he's sort of in an alternative reality where he can't escape because mm-hmm. he because he's sort of stuck in the in between of the war so he basically the the violin sort of acts like a soul to the to the um to the character he's like you know i i this is what i have i'm going to sort of give it to you you know and um he sort of gives that up and then he spends the rest of the time trying to find a way to escape from the devil so i think it's it's pretty pretty intense but i think it's it's worth noting that <laughs> and there's a lot of in unfangled things to sort of discover within this work but um basically it's it's about a soldier trying to get away from the devil trying to figure mm-hmm. out like why he's so entrapped and and uh why the war has taken such a toll and i think he was so ahead of his time that i think the story sort of revolves around a shell shock in a way yeah and i think it's so interesting i think that dealing with that like dealing with stress is it is so I don't know. It is so Stravinsky in that way. It's it's just anxious and it's different, and then it's just everywhere. And I think I, that's why I love it so much. Mm-hmm. It it's certainly a a, a very uh, what's the word I'm looking for a, a symbolic piece. You know, like Absolutely. you said, it very much deals with the the consequences of the war in a in the in the side effects of the war. Um, the first, the first section of it, or or one of the first sections in it, rather, is well, it's not even one of the first sections. It, it's part way in. Is the Royal March that you wanted to talk about? And I think the first thing we have to discuss is the time signature. And we mentioned it in the Rite of Spring, but like it starts out in five eight, and then it goes to two four for seven bars, and then it's back to five eight for two bars, and then it's back to two four, and then to eventually to three four to three eight, and it's like okay. <laughs> dude pick a time what's his reason for constantly changing the time signatures what is he trying to accomplish by continually changing them he's brilliant i have to say oh and there's um, the camera he's 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 absolutely brilliant and something that he does really well is he he doesn't have to worry about the like he changes it up but for some crazy reason, it still doesn't affect the time. Like, it, it flows so easily. Um, and you'll notice that, like, um, there's a bunch of offbeats that are played by some of the instruments that go, and the beginning goes, you know, by the trombone. And then while he's doing that, the time never changes. It's crazy. It's he is such a brilliant composer in that way. Like he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to 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 keep it one time signature. He's like, you know what, I'm gonna play with the time, but I'm gonna keep it this. I'm gonna keep it going at the same sort of way. It it, it just it's it's just it's just so brilliant in that way. I guess if that makes any sense. No, it does, and um, I I suppose you know he just he uses his creativity to his advantage in order to get a certain feel out of it. Uh, anything else about the Royal March you want to say? He's chewing, in case you're <laughs> wondering what that sound uh, is. I'm probably chewing into the microphone. Um, 
So I think something interesting about this work is that the royal march is really based off of the king. And uh, he, he goes to visit the princess and because he realizes that he, he sort of needs help, you know, and he's trying to avoid this, you know, this penultimate thing by the devil, you know, and it's, it's just so powerful, a piece of music. And do you have this cl- classic trumpet excerpt it is and my listeners are like what did i just listen to um it is it's just so interesting because the piece itself is just so unique and Again, he doesn't pull away from any punches. He's just like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. And a lot, of, a lot of people at the time were like, why is he doing this? And I think, I think if I can sort of sum it up in one word, I would just say original. He was an original composer. Didn't try to take from anyone. I think maybe he had a little bit of Russian influence, obviously, but he, he really just tried to do justice to his own work, you know? And um, if I think about it, uh, there's a lot of really like great pieces out there that sort of amplify that. And um, you have other composers like Shosti, Shostakovich, I should say, I'm calling by his pet name, Shosti. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, as all his friends call him, Shosti. <laughs> all his friends call him Shosti. Um, all of his um, other non-American, all his American friends call him Shostakovich. Um, that that's one of his names. Um, and then you got uh, that has to be the worst pronunciation of a Russian name Shost- I've ever heard. Shostakovich, absolutely. Shostakovich. Yeah. It sounds like they're. Ca- it sounds like he's like they're trying to make him Jewish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and then you got Prokofiev. But at the same time, Stravinsky was doing things way before anybody else. So you got to give him the you got to give the man the credit because where credit is due, he was doing so many different things and so well, you know. So um, I have to say, I think he is one of my favorite composers, and I think with that, the the Royal March just sort of exemplifies the fact that he wants to try things and just do different things, and I think he sort of exemplifies that through showcasing different instruments in this section, you know, giving the trombone a chance to shine, giving some percussion the chance to shine, especially the violin and especially the clarinet. Uh, Don't forget the bassoon because he also gives stuff to the bassoon too. Uh, Again, it is just like, I've talked to someone about this before. Like if you think about it, there is no other duo that has voice, percussion, bassoon, clarinet, violin, Think about oh, and I forgot to mention a bass, and it's just so crazy. It, it is just the the sheer amount of different instruments in this case is just so beautiful. So, so go that ahead. Actually, brings up an interesting point about orchestration. Um, what do you think? And for those listening, and yes, they are jackhammering outside of my house, like I mentioned earlier. <laughs> Please ignore. Um, why do you think he chose? to score this piece for a septet instead of a full orchestra. 
Well, he wanted the feel of a chamber piece, I think. He wanted the feel of a very, like... Um, and when you think of chamber music, chamber music can be quite intimate in that way, you know? I think that he accomplished that pretty well by scoring it for very few instruments. And I think he uses the instruments in a very, like, widespread way. He he finds a low and high of each instrument. He finds a... He has a... Um, I mean, not a tuba, but a trumpet and trombone are virtually... A different sounding timbre and you have the you have the bass and you have the violin and you have the clarinet and the bassoon all different kinds of timbres and and they all really work together really well and i think to that to that point of just sort of just it is just so beautiful i think in that way i think it just adds so much flair to the to the piece itself so indeed and moving on to the next portion that you want to talk about, which is the sure. devil's dance. Mm. Um, there's a lot of alternating between the winds and the percussion in this section. What do you think he would, what do you think that symbolizes? Um, I think you mentioned this when we did your, your podcast. Um, I think it mentions like, there's a little bit of fight, you know, in there. And I think he does it really well. And something that he, he does in his music is sort of play off of this raw energy and you sort of see that in his music that, like we mentioned with Rider Spring, you have that bum, 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 bum. In this, you have um, so like, again, my neighbor's looking at me kind of weird, but um, I wish the <laughs> listeners could see you do that. It was a lot of head thrashing. It was a lot of head thrashing. Think about it as rock, man. Um, there's just there's just there's just so much going on and he just and the clarinet is everywhere just going it's it's crazy and it is so amazing like i was able to we were gonna uh i guess we're gonna have on soon her name is amy zoidema or she's gonna be on next tuesday she played with me and she's an incredible clarinet player and like i mentioned with nico she went to bang in a can and um i met her in and she was like, I love this kind of stuff. It is so incredible. And Stravinsky just, like I said, wrote so well for these instruments that it just sounds like they're arguing within one section. Like they're, they're working together. And I know we haven't mentioned this a lot, but the, the voice also does add a lot to, to like some of these sections. Like, like there are some text read in the middle of these sections that sort of describe the chaos that's happening in this section. So... I think in that vein, that same vein, you you sort of think about it, and you're like, oh, it's, I, I can't describe it. I just I just feel so good when I listen to this section. Ironic, given the name of it, the Devil's Dance. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sean, is there something you should be telling me? Um, you know, and it has tons more dissonance, crazy time signature changes. I mean, it's just right. sort of all over the place, um, in the best sense, of course. Right. And then, you know, the, the finishing, well, at least what I have to say about the piece, mm-hmm. with the triumphal dance of the devil. Oh, God, yeah. Why this section? What's significant about it? It is, it is so sad, the way this thing ends. It is just so depressing. <laughs> but it is so, like, it is so Stravinsky to end this way. Giving the antagonist the win at the end of the story knowing that the hero lost and the guy won and that's how it ends 
it really has to just sort of play play a, a role within the war. You sort of think about it, and you're like, what is like the the soldier sort supposed to represent? What's good about the war? Someone who's who's wanting to help, who wants to be there. The devil sort of portrays this negative energy of of manipulation and deceit and trying to be better, you know, and trying to trying to steal from the character, you know. And I think that's just something that's just so amazing about this and i i have to say um i watched my girlfriend uh she played the devil who i asked her to do it and she's like yeah i'll do it and she was very mindful about the 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 ideas of what the devil is doing and something that was just oh well nope no go away That's a very cool ringtone. We had a little wow. musical interlude there. <laughs> and it wasn't sorry. from the chimes in my house. I'm so sorry, everybody. That was my bad. I'll definitely cut that out of the recording. Okay. In that sense, I think, um, and you were asking about the, the ending of the, of the Triumphant Dance of the Devil. Yeah, I said, what's so, significant about it? And you mentioned how uh, you said how, you know, it's very Stravinskyan in that, he makes the antagonist win and absolutely. it represents the war. And right, absolutely. Uh, another question I have is, are there any references or callbacks, you know, recapitulations in this section from earlier in the piece specifically, or is it all new? Maybe a little bit, I would say, because you have the trombone that goes, it's so interesting and like you mentioned before there is this sort of right at the end you have this sort of like rat and tat from back to each other and it just it plays off of one another and it's 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 creepy it's scary i think um it you're sort of like you're they're fighting with each other but then the lead voice is the percussion at the end so you know that that's the sort of the, the heartbeat of the of the of the soldier in a way and then it just fades off and then just stops which is so profound and you get so many goosebumps just thinking about it and like i mentioned before with the devil the devil really comes from a place of of greed and like the deadly sins of like you know gluttony and sort of like sin and all these different sort of scary aspects of the devil aren't really exemplified in to the really end and the devil's like, you know, here you go. Welcome to hell because you trust me. And this is what you get. It's scary. It is terrifying. But in that same vein, Stravinsky never shies away from that. And it definitely shows within his writing that there are so many different callbacks in this. And it's, it's scary. It really is. It's just, you know, it's, it's a little terrifying and it, he never has to hold hold back at all, you know. He just he does his thing, and it definitely should scare an audience member. It should be like this is scary, man. The war has a way of changing people, and and you see that throughout the show, you see that throughout the act in the play, and and you're like, wow, this is scary, and it makes you realize like what you're taking or giving for granted, you know. It's scary. 
Yeah, I agree. And, you know, that's, that concept is very unsettling. And I imagine that it doesn't, not that it, not that it didn't play well at the time, but I'm sure after the war, it either really spoke to people or they were really unhappy with it. I, if, exactly. if I had to guess, I don't, I don't know how they reacted, but you know, after a war, people want to be hopeful, but they also might be comforted by the fact that other people were feeling the same thing they did. So I, I don't know how the audience viewed it living right. back then. And I want to tell you again, Andre, how many fucks did Igor Shavinsky take? <laughs> I don't know. None. None. He, had, he just didn't care. He did his work diligently. And after he finished it, the work spoke for itself. He didn't have to say anything about it. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to like be like, oh, I'm so sorry if it offended you. No, he didn't care. He wanted to, for the work to speak for itself. He wanted to find a way to being like, this is who I am. I'm going to speak out about the war because it's terrible. No one should have to send their loved ones to die, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's a terrible feeling to do that sometimes. That's something that's unspoken. And sometimes you sort of hear that within a message of music and it's just so powerful. And I love that sort of feeling that, you know, when you don't have any answers, you try to turn to what's bad. And you mentioned that in your podcast with Into the Woods, you sort of find blame on others. So the soldier keeps finding blame on the, on the devil, but at the end, he sort of blames himself. He says that this is all my fault. I should just go home and just try to figure it out. But nope, the devil comes up, scoops him up, brings him to hell. And that's the end of the story. It's scary. And he Musically. has to live with it. Sorry, go ahead, Hunter. I'm sorry. No, I was just saying musically, just talk about how does he end the piece? Like I mentioned before, he has the violin and the percussion playing against each other. So you have this sort of like, but it's, it's sort of like this really creepy way of sort of like, it's like a creepy march at the end. And the, the violin acts as the devil. The devil sort of quiets down and then the percussion just ends. And that's the end of the piece. It's and it's Almost, there's no there's no real bang to it, you know, the it's way like a fade out. Right, it just fades out. There's no like you know what? There's and the conductor just stops, lets the percussionist finish, and that's it. Doesn't really it, there's no like hoopla at the end, like hmm. <laughs> some of his pieces. <laughs> but it just ends. And sometimes that's how life that life is. It just it just ends. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no like extra celebration like with Firebird. But he does that for a reason because it, it is a ballet and he takes the time to do that very carefully. But he, he finds ways of just crafting it just so perfectly. And it's scary. It really is. It's, it should scare you at the end. You should be like a little unsettled about what, what happened, you know, because mm-hmm. you're sort of dealing with the internally thinking that that the soldier has a division of the war being like i want to help people i'm going to save people and then by killing people we're going to be helping them you know and but at the, at the end of the side of the war i mean it comes back to hurt you he thinks mm-hmm. he thinks he wins at the end but he doesn't because the devil wins at the end so what else does that have to say about life yeah it's who, very, who, it's who, very deep after you die, who really wins? Is it you or death? Death wins. You know? Mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but that's how Stravinsky viewed the world, you know? And it was scary, but he wanted to say it his way. And like I said, 
Hunter, I'll ask this again. How many fucks do you think he cared about anyone listening to his works? Do tell us, Sean. Again, none. He did not care. How many? Zero. <laughs> zero, 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 zero. He didn't care. He wanted to sort of show people that there's more to music than just one emotion or mm-hmm. two emotions, sad and happy. There are emotions that will make you feel unsettled. You know, like you should sometimes after watching something, you should feel angry and you want to do something about it. You know, like after learning about something and if you feel differently about it, you should act a different way. And that's what he's trying to say. After you listen and you hurt something, what are you going to do about it? And something that he did, he just didn't really care. I, again, admire the hell out of that. So, yeah. And, uh, Perfectly in conjunction with that clock. Um, We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have Sean's other two pieces that he wanted to talk about. So stay with us. And we'll be right back. And we're back. And we have the next two of Sean's playlists that he chose to uh, give us a deep dive into Stravinsky's works. And this next piece... It's from a couple of years after the one we just listened to. And this is the octet written in 1923. And first thing is first, uh, it's an octet. So there are eight voices, eight, eight pieces, or, or sorry, eight parts to the piece. Um, oct being, you know, Latin for eight. Uh, why do you think he chose the specific instrumentation, instrumentation that he did, Sean? Because he wrote it for flute, A-flat clarinet, bassoon one and two, C trumpet, A trumpet, tenor trombone, and bass trombone. I don't know, man. You tell me. I got nothing. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, like I did, like I said with uh, um, Soldier's Tale, he really likes to play with timbres. Um, he definitely likes the clarinet and the trumpet pairing a lot. Um, mm-hmm. The flute and the bassoon pairing is beautiful. And tr- two trombones, why not? Because I think it's just, it's a beautiful sentiment, I think. And they just, they just play so well together. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Why an A-flat clarinet and not a B-flat clarinet? A-flat clarinet, wow. Because it's not something that people really write for anymore. It sort of fell out of favor like around this time period, people stopped really using a flat clarinet. He liked the sound, I guess. I mean, I think about it. He, he was just uh, a rebel man. He just loved just playing around with different sounds. And I think he just really, I think when I did it with, for my elective recital as a senior in college, uh, I remember the uh, clarinet player was like, this is an a flat. I'm like, yeah, it's an A flat. <laughs> he goes, okay. I'm like, all right. <laughs> we don't and, currently have an A flat clarinet no. with us. <laughs> and I was like, all right, whatever. And it, it's so funny because the guy who I got to do it with, he played it on his A clarinet and just had to transpose. Um, and he was just saying the sounds of this are just so good. Um, and I think this was sort of the beginning of his neoclassicism period of, of mm-hmm. writing. Um, I know we're going to be, be able to backtrack a little more with, with Stravinsky's works with Firebird, but this was maybe the first step to his realization of neoclassicism. And we mm-hmm. can maybe talk about Puccinella or we can talk about his other Dumberton Oaks. I think that's another one to think about too. Um, 
But this is maybe his earliest piece that he decided to not have strings on. So mm. it's for all for wind instruments. Ooh, go wind instruments. Um, just explain really quickly to the audience who might not know, what is neoclassicism? So as the prefix neo means new and returning, uh, classicism really started with uh, ideas with Mozart and Haydn, early Beethoven. Um, and I would say that's sort of like, I think something that was mentioned to me early on with classic classical music, especially the, the classical era, is that things were very symmetrical. Things were very sort of straightforward. Um, and, and with neoclassicism, it sort of pairs that off. It, it sort of follows the similar suit. But at the same time, there might be a new thing here and a new thing there. Um, uh, another work that sort of we can maybe talk about at another time would be the mass for uh for for um for woodwind instruments and for for voices he does something with that really well and i i really really enjoyed that um and something that should be noted within his work is he just he honestly just learned something about the instruments itself when he wrote this and i i totally forgot what your question was but um did, did you say the question was about, um, oh, neoclassicism. Why? Sorry. Mm -hmm. So neoclassicism. Yeah, just explaining what it is. Right. So, so neoclassicism is a new take on classical music, but maybe in a different light, maybe adding a few things here and there, sort of playing with different themes. And he sort of does play with this sort of idea of classical music. But again, as you'll see with this piece, some of it, is tonal some of it's not tonal um he does a really great job of sort of playing with that and i think it's it really comes out to be a very beautiful as a matter of fact piece mm -hmm. yeah all right very cool and with that said you know we look at the first movement which is the sinfonia sure sinfonia um mm -hmm. and you know it it's a, I don't want to say it's the most normal of the, of the movements. That's not what I'm trying to say. Um, it is Hunter. It is. You're totally it is. right. Yes. Okay. Go. I feel validated. Um, validate me some more, Sean. Tell me more about this first part. So the word symphonia means an opening of a symphony of some kind. So that's it's literally like, the Italian word for symphony too. Italian word for symphony. It just, in this way, it sort of opens up the piece. Um, it, and it sort of has this sort of like, um, and it's sort of a side of Stravinsky. You don't really see it in a little while. It's sort of mild. It's sort of like taking a step back. He's like, he's like had a little bit of weed. He's like, okay, all right. I'm, gonna step <laughs> I'm here. I'm here, you know? And, but he, he doesn't really care. Like I said before, he's just like, this opening is just so beautiful, so peaceful. And then it just erupts and it's just, it's just this really, really beautiful. It doesn't get too loud ever. It's just sort of contained. That's what I really like about this piece is that it never gets too loud. And the funny thing I want to mention is that he writes for C and A trumpet. And I never, I never envied the A trumpet player because the A trumpet player always has to either play it on B flat and, uh, 
um, move it down a half step or play it on C or, and then do a down minor third. And I think there's a really low note in there. So they would have to play a, a non-existent note on the trumpet. So you really want to play it on B flat in that case. So I think it's interesting in that way you think about all these different instruments and the question that you were asking me about how, sorry, Hunter, what was the question again? I'm sort of getting really sidetracked here. No, no, no. There was, there was no specific question for this part. I just said sort of tell me about this oh, section. Sure. You said it's the most normal. Um, it it's is. the opening. It is, you said it, that it was a side of him we hadn't seen in a while. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I totally, I totally agree with that. I and... hope so, because there were your words. <laughs> 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 yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, I was probably the hardest I've ever laughed. Um, no, I'm, I'm glad that I said that because I'm right. I think uh, in that sense <laughs> that he did write it in that way, and he did have to sort of explain himself to a lot of different people. He was like, "This is how I want it sound. This is what I'm gonna have to do to make it sound good." And I'm like, okay, it's all you, man. Uh, and when I brought it up to my one of my my conductor friends, he's like, oh yeah, I totally want to do it. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, absolutely, because I love this piece. I'm like, okay. And the reason being is just because it's just it, it's it's like the most non-Stravinsky thing you've ever heard up until that point. If you knew everything that he ever wrote, and you listen to this piece, and you're like they don't really match that well together. Like you think about like, like we just, we just listened to Rite of Spring and we just talked about Soldier's Tale for God's sake. And now we're talking about this piece that is just so normal. And so you're like, like, is this the same guy? I know he, he, he has different periods in his life where he does all this great modernistic music. Then he starts writing um, neoclassicism. And then he just starts writing about, he just starts using tone rows and stuff like that. Cause that's what other people were doing at the time, you know? And again, like I mentioned, Schoenberg, the hater was like, come on, man, this is my, this is my idea. I invented the second school, the Viennese school. I want to do this. And you're, and he's going to like, whatever, I want to do it too. And any, I mean, like Schoenberg was sort of like, this is my music. No one should try to replicate what I'm trying to do. Only Berg and Webern are the only two people can, that can really try to do this, you know? And then it came out to this point where, again, Hunter, I need to ask you this again, but you need to tell me the answer to this question. How many fucks did he, did he care about this? None, Sean. None. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I prepared that. Um, he, he was just so good about really not caring, but also being so creative in the way he displayed music. And especially in this first movement, he's just so careful with how he uses each individual instrument. And he uses them to their existent strengths. Like for the trumpet, he sort of uses it for its articulation and its strong melodic passages. And with the clarinet, again, with, with Soldier's Tale, trying to find that sort of transition there, you sort of find him sort of playing around with these crazy ideas. And the clarinet could, like, I think when I think of the clarinet, I think of initially at this time, one of the biggest excerpts of the clarinet was Rhapsody in Blue. So I think about that being a deciding factor that maybe had influenced Stravinsky at the time, being like, you know what? The, the value of this instrument shouldn't be weighed on its classical music. You think of, maybe you think of different clarinet concertos and the clarinet was sort of acting like maybe a, a trumpet in a way, like 
an extension, but Mozart sort of invented as like an idea. He's like, this is how I want to write it. The clarinet Mozart concerto is beautiful. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying like, but taking taking away that sort of like classical era, but also he is he's still in that era with the neoclassicism, but he invents new techniques for the clarinet. Like he was like, again, Hunter, I hate to say it, but he was a break, he was a rule breaker. You know, he just tried different things. It sometimes didn't work, but when it did, it just spoke so loudly. Sometimes even like music speaks sometimes, you know? Wait, know. that's the name of this that's the name of this podcast. All right, no, I'm kidding. Go figure. Go figure. Uh, part of do you think also part of it was that by nineteen twenty he had moved to Paris. Or I, I don't know if he was in Paris, but he was in France which we said was like a cultural hub. So he was meeting a lot of other people that he, oh, pre- you know, he wouldn't have met outside of, of, or he would not have met if he were still in Russia. Absolutely, I think about it. Absolutely. There was the, the big band era that came to France and came to Paris and sort of exploded. And as you see in... Um, in the soldier's tale, like we mentioned before, there's a section of ragtime, just a section of ragtime that's really fast and like really intense. And he uses this as like it's it's a it's a black art form that was brought to to him from the United States, and that was used in early like sing songy playful music, and he used it in his works in a beautiful way. Because ragtime was also a dance, too. And I think that's something that's beautiful about his writing was incorporating different cultures within his writing. was something that was just so groundbreaking. So, again, this first movement, again, I could spend another three hours on it just because of how unique it is. But if you want to go out and listen to it, please do, because it is just so unique to its, to its T. And it'll surprise you. It'll be like, this, this is Stravinsky? But when I listen to it for the maybe the 50th time, I know for a fact that there's just so much going on that under underneath looks easy, but it's really hard. And like you mentioned, Hunter, with that same vein of always having to chain time signatures, he'll do that. He'll make it really slow and then super fast and then really slow and then super fast and then super fast, even more super fast and then really slow. And he loves that. He loves keeping the audience on edge, like I mentioned, but he still does that in a in a conventional way and still surprises people. So, yeah, yeah, and you know maybe his his second movement is not as conventional. Um, and it's absolutely tema con variazioni, which mm-hmm. is Italian for theme and variations, which is a popular compositional technique. A lot of art, a lot of com- uh, composers have done it from Mozart you know, on, um, even prior to that. Uh, where do you see the variations? What are the changes that he makes in this? Sorry, Hunter, say that again. What are, you know, how do you see the variations? Like, what is the theme and what variations does he make? What are the changes he makes to the theme that he writes in this section? Or is it a, is it a theme from the previous section? That's a great question. Um, so he, he, this is the original theme that he wrote from this section. And again, to sort of play with that neoclassicism in this section, it, 
it sort of sticks with that. But yet in that same level, it's crazy and wild and yet it's so refined. And I think that's so beautiful. And like you mentioned, these different variations take on so many different characters. Um, and it always starts with this. It's this crazy sort of like thing that the clarinet and the flute has to do. And, and I want to mention this to our listeners that when you go listen to it, there's, there's a there's a bassoon part that goes and I initially thought that was one thing and he could have just played it as one thing but of course Sherman seems like nah I'll have two players do it and so each of the each of the player has to go but a little but also fall a little but a little and it has to be seamless so there's no actual stop in between the two. So you can imagine how hard it, how that is to coordinate within one player. And when I was doing it with my, with my friends, I had a professional come in and play with us. And I was like, man, this is so hard. And I'm like, dude, I know. Because as you, as you listen to these bassoon players play back and forth, it's just, it's so fascinating. Um, and again, who else but Stravinsky would decide to put two instruments together in the fastest rhythm in the entire piece together? So, on the, one of the hardest instruments ever played. I mean, if I think about it, it just makes me laugh because they there's just there's just so much happening, and he just does it so well, and it's it's crazy. I mean. If I think about it, he, he, he just does so much hard work with it. And there's a lot of really... And going back to that theme of different characters, there's like this very like sly one. And then there's this very like mopey, sad, atonal one that's like very like in your face. And I love it. It's just like it's everywhere. And something else that I love about this movement is that it's so... It's it's never predictable. You have no idea where it's going to go. It always starts with that same melody, but then it just twists. And then right at the end, and then it just takes us back to the third movement, which is just a beautiful segue to sort of lead into the movement. And Hunter, I need to ask you if you did your homework, who is that instrument that leads into the third movement? Instrument that leads into the third movement. And it's a, it's a segue, so it goes from the second to the third movement. I don't know. I don't know. Oh. I guess I didn't do my homework thoroughly enough. What is the instrument? It's a bassoon. Is it the bassoon? I should have guessed because we talked about how much he really apparently liked the bassoon. He loves he seems the to, bassoon. He seems to really give it a lot of attention. I know. He does it so well, and I think the coolest thing about the bassoon is just how he, it, it's not even like, I'm just smiling thinking about it, just because it's its so much like a meme in that way, like he just plays with the, with the instrument and just expects the bassoon to be one of the best instruments out there, and I love that, like expecting an instrument to be at the best level is just great and knowing that you'll have this sort of um thing is is just oh god it's just so beautiful so um 
it, it just, it, it took me aback and it sort of put me in a weird place because I was like, holy crap, this is just, to write for an instrument that doesn't have a lot of repertoire is great, you know, because you're developing something over time and it's just, it's such a beautiful sentiment and I, I do feel like he writes so well for this section and again i'm i'm so jealous of the bassoon because there are great composers for trumpet out there but composers who really wrote really well for their instruments were so successful and that's why stravinsky is a sort of a household name because he does so much hard work in that sense so take it away hunter let's bring it up to the third movement yeah so the third movement is the finale and this section is much more low-key than you'd expect from a multi-section piece do you think this was intentional absolutely i say that so loudly because again hunter i need to ask you how many fucks did he did he did he did he care about i'm gonna say none that is correct he just didn't care and again, with that same vein, he just, he chugs along, plays with this, plays with all these different melodies, and it never really gets too loud. And the funny thing is, Hunter, you're, 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 you're expecting to get to this bomb, 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 bomb. It's just the cutest ending ever. It is just if I if I can just think of another compo I can't think of another composer who would do that. Who would just play with you. Maybe um maybe like PDQ Bach or something like that, but uh he's doing that intentionally, but Honestly, if I think of it, I can't think of another composer who would just do something like that. And I am just so afraid to just be like, this is just something that's just so unique. And I, I love it. This is just so different than anything else I've ever listened to. And I think it's something that will always inspire me as a person and inspire those listening to be like you know what there's other composers i don't know out there i really want to explore this one and stravinsky is the one you really want to explore because again hunter how many fucks did he give that would be zero that is correct and with that in mind he just didn't care but he wrote such good music you know he just he found a way to to just help people you know and just it's it's just it's so it's so beautiful. Like it just you you get to this climactic moment, but then it just ends. What what theme does that bring about? Is there more than just suspension in music? You know, like some things are just left unsaid. You know, in music, something you can imagine how it could have ended, or maybe you you maybe it didn't. You know, and that's fine too. But if I think about it. He really wanted to end it that way because he just felt like there is this sort of like aura around it that could have, you know, changed the spectrum of the piece. So, um, something else a, I think. Sorry, go ahead, Hunter. Oh, no, I was going to say something else that I think he did well 
is, and it's interesting, he gave the trumpet uh, like a very lyrical part, uh, something that would usually go to the woodwinds, but he chose to put it in trumpet, which I thought is, is different. Unheard of. Very. And also something is the very last section from about, I think, because I was looking at the virtual score as I was um, listening to it, was from section 71 to the end. It has a very different feel to it. It's a pretty cool drive, yet it's calm. The harmony is also very cool. So I think, you know, if you're going to, for our listeners, you know, if you, if you jump to the end, it's a very cool ending. I mean, the whole piece is cool, but. Absolutely, because he just, he played with so many different genres. And I think at that point, he plays with a syncopation like a boom. Dun, 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 dun. I thought it was sort of a jazzy way to sort of end peace, and I think he does that really well. Yes, I agree. Very jazzy. Um, so with that, I think we should move on to his last, well, not his last piece, but the last piece we'll talk about by him, um, which is probably his son. I'll say it's his second most famous beside behind Rite of Spring. And it's called The Firebird. And this is actually the Firebird Suite, which is a, a compilation that he wrote of the music from the ballet that he originally scored. Um, Correct. So the ballet was of the same name, and it was adapting the legend of the Firebird along with another Russian folktale. And there were three famous suites that he wrote like three versions of the same suite, but the most popular came from 1919. So we're backtracking to just before he moved to Paris or to, to France. Um, and again, written just after the war ended. The czar was now dead. His life, I, maybe he didn't know where it was gonna go after that, or maybe he did. Um, but let's talk about the first section. This jackhammer is on my nerves. I'm gonna. I'm ready to go out there and like throw something at them. Um, this section is the first section. Ronde de Princess is so restrained. It definitely feels like it wants to get so much bigger, but there's like beauty in the quiet, so he doesn't move too much from that. There's a swell at like eight minutes and ten seconds in, but it doesn't quite. Uh, it doesn't quite get there. Um, what do you have to say about this this section? It is so breathtaking. The first time I listened to it, I went to the New Haven Symphony and I listened to it and it just, the sound just came to me and I was like, I think I picked the right instrument, but <laughs> the woodwinds are having so much fun in this section and it's just, it's so beautiful. It's so calming and it just, it melts my heart every time I listen to it, honestly. And it makes me so happy. And honestly, Hunter, do you know about the lick in jazz? The lick in jazz? Yes. Do you know about the lick? I, I know about a lick. Which one are you, you talking about? Boo-doo-doo-be-dee-boo-da. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so but but, it, but explain to the audience what you're talking about. So there is a lick that happens in jazz a lot, where a lot of jazz players play boo boo doo doo, which is sort of like a nice two five one. 
progression played within a melody. And it's funny that I mentioned that because this lick finds its way into the Rondes des Princesses, which is really interesting. And the oboe part goes, boo do do so I think it's kind of funny that that comes up in that way. And I, it's so interesting to think about it that way. I think it's something that is um, widely done, but I, he obviously didn't know about it, but I think it's interesting that that comes up in that way. But I think about that piece, that, that movement a lot. And when I think about it, I like closing my eyes and just sort of imagining these princesses just dancing and just being together as a family and spending time with each other. I think it's just beautiful. I think it's a beautiful sentiment to how Stravinsky writes beautiful music. And in contrast, the, the section, the next section that you wanted to talk about <laughs> is the probably the most famous one from the piece. It's the, um, the Danse Infernal. And or you, know, you say in French the dance infernal the, with the <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just have two pieces of input before you you know you can go crazy with this which is just that sure it's really such an imaginative section and I by that sure. I don't mean it's creative even though it is I mean like the writing creates such imagery um, yeah. it's just it's it's so vivid. And also listening to it today, I don't know that audiences are as shocked by it as they may have been back then. The tonality that was probably very different is not as uncommon now, but right. it still evokes a very powerful sense of emotion. Absolutely. And funny enough, of course, the, the, the last section ends, and the strings just vibrate and just let it go. And you hear bum. And the funniest thing about that is if you do it really well, you'll always find one audience member, one audience member who's sleeping. And there's a great video of this. There's an audience member that sort of drifts off. And then when they hear that loud, they go ah, like that. And fuck Anchor, it's, it's, it works as a transition on Anchor, which is really interesting. And I, I, I love that about, 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 the, um, about Anchor um, and this piece because it, it's just so unique. And it's just such a, a vibrant exploration of, of wild fantasy. Like I mentioned, um, he doesn't really care, Hunter. He doesn't. He wants to just find the outrageous of it all. He is so intuitive in that. He just, he's like, there's mad, but what is infernal mean? What does infernal flames mean? What does that mean? Like, what does, what does that explore? Like, how, how do I, how do I right, how do I put that to music? And he, God does he do it so well. It makes you, it makes your head spin because it's like, it makes you feel so happy and you're like, oh God, here we go, man. And then when you play it as a trumpet player, you get so excited. It's just so much fun. And um, you may have a tendency to rush like I do sometimes, but because it, it's so exciting and it's just so fun to play. 
And there's so many offbeats with this. And like Hunter was saying, the characters in this section are just all over the place. There's a, there's a sort of a clue. There's like a clue, this guy, and there's a guy like with a knife. And then there's a guy like running around and the, the, the big scary monster, the firebird is sort of taking over the country and like putting like, it's crazy, you know, like it's, it's spreading all this fire all around the land and it's terrible. And the princes are like, princes and princes are like, ah, no, don't do that. And it's, it's absolute chaos. Again, I really get into all the music, but again, I I couldn't be able to do justice to just how describing and how, what I would want to say about this piece, because I could just go on forever about this particular movement. But if I can say one thing, go listen to it because it is something incredible and you're going to miss it if you don't listen to this piece. Because this specific movement gives me goosebumps all the time and just like the last one does but this one especially is just so much fun and again hunter can i ask you another question sure does he like does does stravinsky like trying things in his music you know i think he might i think but it's he just might too. a guess yeah, that is that's a great guess. And in this section, do you know what I'm thinking about? Is there is there one instrument you know that he experiments with? Is it bassoon? Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, but maybe think in the brass area. What 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 one does he try in the brass area? The trombone. That is correct. And what does he do? What does he <laughs> is do in it this section? The trombone. What is what does he do? Say it again. In the, what, well, in what, this section, I mean, it, you're, it's constantly playing. I mean, it, it has like one of the, the main melody is, I think, in the low right. brass. I know, and but what, what there's an extended technique that is added to the repertoire. What is it? Is it like a flare? Nope. I, don't, I don't know the technical term for it. Where, it like it? where they're blaring? Nope. What is it? What is known for slides in music? What is known for slides? I mean, the trombone obviously is the instrument known for sliding with like a, what do you, wait, what's the word for it? The um, schmear. What, what, the schmear or what's, what's, the the, what's, a more, what's a more of a classical word to sort of describe what, what the instrument's doing? Describing the schmear. A glissando? So the, that is correct. He uses the glissando in a very beautiful way in sort of like a whole tone-ish way. So he goes, in sort of a really awesome way. Um, if you have a good trombone player, that'll obviously sound great. And if the trombone player doesn't know how to play trombone and doesn't know how to do a glissando, obviously it sounds terrible. But the good trombone players that do it really well add to the, add to the franticness of the piece. Because it's sort of like this sort of like, oh, here we go. Oh, God. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's terrifying. Almost like a fire it, engine. Right, exactly, exactly. I don't think he had that thought in mind when he wrote it, but I think in, in that same way, like he was sort of playing with that glissando, you know, and, and that sort of helped him sort of play through that whole tone-ish part of the, the piece. And it, it, it just adds so much, I think, in that way. Um, there's something else I want to mention about maybe one of the first movements is another extended technique. He uses the violin where he, they, they go to the bridge and you hear and it's so unique and again hunter does he like trying things in music you know he just might he might he loves doing that kind of thing he loves trying to find new sounds in his music i think that's so impressive and 
And look, this end of this piece, it just gets more fire and fire and fire, and then boom, it crashes and burns. I just love it. So. And then, speaking of instruments that he enjoys, the next section, the, um, I don't know how to say it exactly in French, but I'm going to call it the Bercuse. Sure. Um, sure. It opens with this very, like, lamenting melody with one of his favorite instruments, the bassoon. Yeah. Absolutely. Anything oh. else stand out to you? Sorry. Anything else stand out to you about the this section? Sure. Well, well, when I think about it, it, it's just, it's so beautiful and it's so breathtaking and it's just so fragile. Um, the bassoon with its sort of like, it's it's so sweet and yet it's just he just loves that alto sort of sound you know and i think he's just obsessed with that with that sound of um, the bassoon, because it just adds to this very ethereal, eerie, mysterious sound, like in the beginning of Red of Spring, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I have the to say, contrast, of... oh, go ahead. And, and the contrast between instruments is just so interesting, too. It is. And I have to say that the, at section four, again, I was looking at the score as I was listening to it, but at section sure. four, at about 15 minutes and 30 seconds into the song, there's a gliss and it goes up to this one chord and it's sort of like the biggest section up to that point. And I was like, wow, what a harmony in that, in that moment. And you're, it sort of just grabs you. You're like, wow. Hunter, I need to ask you something real quick. Was this your first time listening to Firebird? No, no, I had heard Firebird before. Um, Coincidentally, which I was going to mention in the next movement was that it was used in Fantasia 2000. Um, right. They animated it. It was the finale piece. And um, I, that was where I had first heard it. But uh, I, And I always thought it was impressive there. I, it was such a cool piece. That I thought they brought it to life in such a, a very, very spectacular way. But I don't know, something about when I was listening to it this time, I heard that and I was like, whoa, that is something. <laughs> Um, and again, it happens in like these quiet moments and then it's a little bit of a build. It got a little bit louder. They gliss up to that chord and you're just like, that's cool. That's what it's about. Yeah, it is um, the coolest thing. It is. And speaking of the finale, I think everyone likes this movement. Um, the power in the section is almost indescribable. I mean, it's just sort of like palpably moving and uh, it's just very cool. What do you think makes it so moving? What, why, what does he do that makes it such an uplifting section? Wow. What makes it an uplifting section? It's the hopefulness of mm -hmm. it. It's the horn. The horn really just adds to the peace of it all. Because if you think about it, of all the other brass instruments in this section, you have a horn, you have a trombone, you have a trumpet, you have a tuba. Um, nothing really speaks like the horn does, you know? The horn's heroic call like it usually does. And 
I think of it as like a as like a hunting call in a way, but a very like heroic. And he sort of mocks, like maybe not maybe not mocks mocks is a bad word, but maybe sort of uses the sound that um, Wagner uses in some of his symphonies when the horn comes in, sort of like a, as in a lone voice. You know, he uses the strings as like a background chords, which is definitely interesting, but he does it really well. And there's just this really hopeful part of it that just, it's just so heartbreaking. It's so sad and it just adds to so much happening. And it makes me so, that part makes me tear up a little bit thinking about like how the, the horn can just bring this magic, majestic and closing like sound to it and just being so happy you know just being like it's sort of like an angelic sort of moment where you sort of admire it from afar and it just it just it just adds to the the feeling of this piece which is just so heartbreaking but it just and then when you get to that point it's like because after all of this destruction, we have the pursuits that was sort of a mourning in a way. And then, and then there's a glimmer of hope. Like the firebird comes back and realizes the damage that he's done. And he's like, I'm sorry. I want to make it up to you guys and give you the land back that you deserve, you know? And the nature is happy to give it back to... And in, in, in Fantasia, like you mentioned... The forest gives back its its locks and its its grass and its trees from its all burning down from the firebird and the firebird realizes its mistake you know and it's it's such a beautiful message too and I I love that about it you know yeah and uh, specifically I think the the part that always gets me the most uh, is there's there's a, at section forty four there's a uh, there's a chord and if, if you know it you'll or if you know the piece when you hear it even if you don't know the piece when you get right. there uh you'll know what it is sure and in the last section and it gets me every time i listen to it because it's just it's so uh, i mean you used the word before it's so hopeful uh and it has this very grand yet not braggart like quality it's, it's almost like a humble beauty type thing um humble grandioseness um, and I just think it's so cool. Under, I want to quickly, if I can mention something real quickly. Yeah. Um, another really good example of of this from somewhere else would be Bruckner. Too Bruckner used horns in that same way too. Um, I could spend some time talking about Bruckner too, and how he used the horn as like a tool of hope and integrity. And, and I think that really stems from the early use of the horn, which was the hunting call, you know? And the hunting call maybe like, obviously to kill animals, but it also had this hopeful sound to it, which I think was why I like it so much. And I think that's why it adds to that sort of sound of just like glowingness and angelic part of it. Like everyone stops and listens to that exact moment because they're like, huh. It really does justice to how beautiful it is as as a as a, as an instrument, and it it really takes one breath. It's like after all this 
chaos and sadness out of the dust. <laughs> it's like that moment in Avengers where where Captain America realizes everyone's coming back to help him, you know? Mm-hmm. He looks back and he sees everyone sort of coming through. Again, I'm hopefully not ruining Avengers Endgame for anyone, but I'm thinking about it and that that moment just makes me feel like we're like there's a message of hope that goes out to the world and i think again stravinsky being his craziest and wonderful self just trying new things not worrying about like how it'll be taken about you know and this is i think one of my favorite works because of how beautiful and tender and how how much time it takes for people to sort of talk about these things. So I mean, I'm, I'm really happy that, that this, this thing, and then we're going to, you're going to, you're going to the next, I'm sure the next question you're going to ask me, and then it just wraps into this glorious ending, which is just so beautiful. And I'm sure you want to talk about that. Yeah. It, the ending is really particularly, it has the, um, you know, those chords at the very end, that you know, bum 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 bum, you know, and it's just you know, you sit there, you're like, just, you just you're like, wow, that what do I even say about that? I know when I listened to that section for the first time, I had I had goosebumps. I was like, oh god, oh god, oh god, it's so good. It made me feel like a it yeah. I mean, I had heard it before, and like, I still did yesterday. It, it 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 does. It gives everyone goosebumps because it's like it's so gradual, but he does it so well. And I I hate myself for just not being there the first time anyone played it because it it must have been like so groundbreaking, you know? Something something that that like and talk about another jazz technique playing chords within other chords, you know. He has this sustained note playing other chords, a pop that chord. Ah, so, so, so smart, that man. So smart. So should give him an award for something like that. I'm sure they did at some point. And with that, Sean, I want to thank you so much for your discussion that you gave and uh, all your insightful comments and your interpretations. Yeah. I do have one thing, Hunter, if if you'll let me. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Sure. So we have one more segment on the show where I'm going to show Hunter something and he's he, he and I are going to talk about it. So sure. don't go away. We're going to listen to we're going to talk about something called fanfare for a new theater, And I want to gauge Hunter's interest on it and see what he thinks. So don't go away. Sure. OK. All we're right. Back. Yep. We're oh, back. Yeah. And Sean just had me listen to a piece called fanfare for a new theater by Igor Stravinsky and you know it'll be added to the playlist that we're going to attach to this episode so you can listen to Stravinsky's greatest hits here that we chose um that Sean chose and Sean where did you first hear this piece this is crazy um it was in college and I remember people being like, oh, this piece is so hard. Why would you ever play this piece? And then I listened to it and I was like, this is so good. <laughs> I'm like, people, I'm like the, like the reverse of like people who like things. 
So like if people don't like things, I'll just like them immediately. And if they don't like things, they'll be like, uh, you know. So it's kind of a weird sort of dual thing I have. But this one is just so interesting. And it's like this 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 one is sort of really based on his later works, I believe. Because I think it came out in 1964. So really at the end of his life. I was going to say that's a much later work of his compared to so, some of the ones we just listened to 40 years right, later. Right. And we do have some idea of some of his atonality within his music. And I think it's just, it's. A metaphor for what it is. And I think it's just amazing. I have no word for it, just because it's just so incredible. Did you did you did you just pause it? Oh, you just oh, you got it back. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, I'll I paused it because you you had cut out for the last like minute and a half. You were sort of silent. Oh. <laughs> that's fine. That's okay. That's okay. Okay, we'll keep going. So, so you, did like, you have a question for me about it? Yeah, I wanted to ask you about it. What did you what did what did you like about it? Can I challenge you this time? Um. So, I mean, it definitely. I I definitely think that it had an intricate rhythm to it. Like, I, I really, I appreciate the way that he had the the two pieces lined up because they clearly don't fit together and yet they clearly do so it's a weird dichotomy i can't explain it maybe it's the atonality that's throwing you off but i mean i didn't hate it <laughs> i mean i wouldn't say it's one of my favorites that he's done it is it, it's it's just so unique the way he does it though i have to say just because it's just so open-ended and so different um but that's my only take hunter i just want I'm going to play it for you just because I feel like if I wanted to sort of complete the cycle on all of his works, I would say that would probably be a good way to end his, his, uh, his legacy of music, as they would say. Oh, his legacy never ends. But I do thank you for, for playing it for me. And sure. for all the listeners, I'm sure we'll be very interested to hear it. Um, and again, thank you, Sean. Insightful commentary, insightful interpretation. Uh, next time we will be talking about. Um, uh, we'll. Be, I couldn't even say anything there. We're it's gonna okay. have to we cut can, that. Well, we'll cut that. We'll cut that. Go ahead. Yeah, we'll cut it. Try so it I'll again. just start it back here. Try it again. Yep. Uh, I don't know why I was distracted outside by my friends on the road. Um, <laughs> yeah, by that. Da, 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 da. Uh, so thank you, Sean, for your insightful comments and interpretations. Next time, we'll be talking with fellow podcasters Nora and Darlene, the hosts of Coloring the Melody, who will be discussing with us the equal and fair representation in music education. Sounds so exciting, Hunter. I can't wait to talk to them. I know. It should be good. It should be a good... Uh... Uh, discussion. And with that, I'm Hunter Sagona. 